There she is. Welcome to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. We're here to study John 14. We left off around uh, verse 9. I'm going to give you the little quick backstory of where we are and what's been going on. John 14, Jesus's public ministry, where he was preaching in public, doing uh, miracles and uh, debating with the Pharisees. All of that is over. No more public ministry. He's given the Jews sort of one last chance. And um, now he is in the upper room for about five chapters in John, just giving his uh, disciples a private briefing to prepare them for the turmoil that's going to come later that night when he's arrested, seven trials, beaten, whipped, nailed to a cross, and die. They are, their world is going to be turned upside down as well. Even though he's the one that's about to die and suffer, he's comforting them. It's pretty amazing. Um, it's the night before his crucifixion. We just had the Last Supper, um, and Judas was pointed out as the betrayer, and he has left to go start that process. Um, so they've the disciples have learned that someone's going to betray him. At least John and Peter know it's, or have a good idea, it's Judas. The others may not know, because it, it says that he, some of them think he left to go get supplies for the meal that's going to be uh, happening in a few days. Let's see, but they also know that the leader of the disciples, Peter, is going to deny Jesus three times. So their whole world is about to be really turned upside down. So it's a long private briefing. We get to um, eavesdrop. It's kind of a cool thing. Um, so chapter 14 is considered one of the most comforting chapters in the whole Bible. Starts with, let not your hearts be troubled. You all know that, right? You believe in God, believe also in me. And he talks about his father's house and that there's many dwelling places there. He's going to prepare a place for them. He's going to come and come back to earth someday and they can be all together. So, but he knows that their hearts are troubled. So that phrase appears more than once in this chapter. So pick it up in verse, um, let's see. Yeah, he says, I'm going away and... So he says an odd thing in verse four. I'm just giving you the background. He says, you know the way to the place I'm going. Uh, and Thomas, who's very honest, last week we talked about it, in verse five says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? So that sets up verse six, which is the sixth of the seven I am statements in the gospel of John, where he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We talked about that last week. He's the way to get to the Father. He's the truth and the life. And the, he's, it's an exclusive way to get to God. There aren't many ways. There's not two ways. He is the way, the only way to get to the Father. Why? Because otherwise there's no sacrifice for sin for people that try to go in another way and uh, they're condemned for their sin. So he says, uh, if you really knew me, you'd, verse seven, you'll know my Father as well. From now on, you do know the father he's talking about god the father and you've seen him philip says lord show us the father that'll be enough for us it's kind of a almost a humorous saying just show us god the father that'll be good we can move on verse 9 jesus answered don't you know me philip even after i've been among you such a long time anyone who's seen me has seen the father how can you say show us the father 
That's a pretty astounding thing for a human being, if that's all he is. Of course, he's not. He's God in a human body. But it's an amazing thing for him to say. In the Old Testament, you remember that in the Ten Commandments, God makes a big deal out of, don't make any idols, any graven images. Don't bow down to anything. Don't make a representative representation of me, God says, because that would be an inanimate, dumb object, not able to speak. It doesn't adequately at all, nothing could adequately display who and what the Father is, except Jesus does that. John 1.18 says that, and 1.14 does as well. So no idols, no material image. Um, but here's Jesus saying, don't you know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So it's not like you've seen boys that have a father and you say, oh, I see the resemblance. Resemblance is different. Jesus is saying, when you've seen me, you've seen the father. The way I react to things, we don't disagree about anything. My words are the father's words. He said that several times in this gospel. He, his actions are his, the father's actions. He heals. He has life within him. He raises the dead. He created uh, and on and on. So he's again hammering home the point. And we've said as an overarching theme in this Bible study, the gospel of John is about who is Jesus. And to demote him to make him anything less than fully God is to make all of this make no sense whatsoever. He is fully God and fully man, and he fully reveals God the Father. Um, so he says, don't you know me? I've been around you such a long time, about three years uh, at this point, maybe even a little more. Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. Pretty amazing. So how can you say, show us the Father? And then verse 10, he says, don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? We call this mutual indwelling, one in the other. It's going to extend in a minute. You're going to see that he's going to be in believers and they in him, in a sense, as well. Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? Now he's going to talk about his words. The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who's doing his work. So there's the words and the work of God manifest visible in this character, Jesus of Nazareth. Pretty amazing thing. If he was just a man, it would be absolute blasphemy. But he has proven who he is by the miracles, by the wisdom, by the creating... Uh, bread out of just a few loaves and fish, out of calming storms, raising the dead, lepers, demons, we could go on and on. He has proved it uh, so many different ways how, how much that he is truly God. Remember that miracles, the works he's talking about, miracles are called in the Bible signs, and signs point to something. The purpose of the miracles is not to just show off and David Coffer. David, David Copperfield do magic tricks. It's to show his deity. The point of all the miracles cumulatively is people ought to be able to look at them and say, no human being could do one of those, let alone all of them, much less speak the way he does and rise from the dead. He must be who he says he is. Talk is cheap. You can say you're God. He proves it. So, um, we're one in nature, he's saying, but also in operation. We do the same works. We say the same words. Um, the Father living in me is doing his work, verse 10. Look at verse 11. 
Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves, the miracles, the signs. We were just talking about that. So I want you to notice verse 11 is a command. That's going to come up later. But just notice that it's not, I suggest you believe in me. He's commanding them, believe me when I say that the Father is in me and I'm in the Father, or at least believe on the evidence of the works, the miracles, which they've seen. It's interesting, a lot of other people saw the miracles and didn't believe. The problem with miracle faith, as I call it, miracle faith is faith that is a result of, I saw this miracle, so now I believe. The problem with that is you're always looking for another miracle, and then one more after that. Our faith um, is based on the word of God, the cumulative evidence that Jesus Christ is who he said he was, the son of God. So verse 12, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Now, believe me, First of all, when I say this verse has confused a lot of people, a lot of Christians, and it sounds pretty fantastic, doesn't it? Okay, so first of all, um, let's see, where do we want to begin here? Well, the first thing I'll say is that it, this verse is preceded or introduced by that phrase he says whenever he wants you to really listen, which is truly, truly, I tell you, very truly, I tell you, verily, verily, I say unto you, if you have King James, that means listen up. This is really important. Okay, so we got that out of the way. We're ready, Jesus. Go ahead. Whoever believes in me, and believes is a key word in the Gospel of John. It has to do with faith, understanding the Gospel, and believing it, and trusting in it. Okay, so that's all of us so far, okay? Whoever believes in me, okay, that's Christians, not everybody, but Christians, will do the works or the same works that I've been doing. Let's stop right there. Does anybody scratch in their head saying, really? Notice he doesn't say a few of the people that believe are going to have miracle power. He's saying, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me, will do the same works I've been doing. Notice the next phrase is even greater works, but let's wait for now on that. So what can this possibly mean? Well, what are the works he's been doing? Okay. On a surface level, you look at the works he's been doing and you say, well, you just mentioned him, Joe. He walked on water. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He cleansed lepers. He cast out demons, multiplied loaves and fish. Are we supposed to be doing these things according to this verse? Okay, well, what's going on here? Let's rate miracles, shall we? Okay. In other words, um, if you could rate jobs, and Chris says he painted the whole inside of the church, and I said, oh, yeah, well, I swept this area. What's the greater work? It's obviously a bigger deal that you painted the whole inside of the church, right? What's the great, greatest of the miracles? Where is healing the sick? That's pretty good, isn't it? Yes. What about raising the dead? That's, that's got to be above healing the sick. Wouldn't you agree? How about calming storms, telling a storm to stop or walking on water? 
How about restoring somebody's withered hand or blind eyes or deaf ears? Maybe not as good as raising the dead, but you got to admit that's pretty amazing. What's your point, Joe? What do all those miracles have in common? Well, they're miracles. Yes, I know. What else? Every single one of those things, don't get me wrong, they're incredible. They're proof that he's God. But they are all temporary, right? He healed this man, which is great, and it might last another 40 years, and then the man's going to die and be judged or not according to what he does with Jesus Christ. Walking on water, that's great, temporary. Raising the dead, casting out demons, that's great, but the person's still going to die. Lazarus died again. He was raised from the dead. All of those miracles are temporary. So he can't mean greater miracles than what he did in the sense you're thinking of grandiose miracles. Even if you try to make this verse refer only to the 11 disciples that are in that room, did some of them do miracles in the book of Acts? Yes. Greater miracles than Jesus? Not really. None of them walked on water. There was a few people raised from the dead. Healings occurred. But as you read through the book of Acts, the miracles tend to diminish. And if you look at church history, as soon as the last apostle was dead, which is John around the year 90-95, somewhere in there, miracles decrease greatly to where in the church we have now and what we've had for 1900 years, you have to admit, I believe, and you probably do too, God can still do miracles, right? But they're not normative. Nobody's going through the hospitals, emptying them out room by room, touching everybody, and right? Nobody is raising people from the dead. It's certainly not normative. All of those miracles, healing, raising of the dead, again, are temporary. Okay, so you say, okay, well, then what's a permanent miracle? A permanent miracle, which is also a greater miracle, I think you'll see, is when a sinner who is destined on his way to hell to pay for his own sins has his whole life changed by the Savior by the preaching of the gospel, by the sharing of the gospel, whether by a minister or a person like me that's not a minister or Rex or Kathy or anybody that just tells a friend and they come to faith in Christ, that, folks, is a greater miracle than walking on water, even than raising the dead. Because in a sense, that person has been raised from the dead permanently. They are born again, and that miracle will last forever. Do you see what I'm saying? Okay, so now go back to the verse. Believe me, uh, let's see, verse 12. Whoever believes in me will do the works that I've been doing. Okay, you say, but it's the works. The work that Jesus was doing was to bring glory to God the Father and draw people to himself. Listen, not to watch the show of miracles, but for salvation. So that you and I have the opportunity to do that every single day, because there's nobody in this room and nobody on Zoom that doesn't know somebody, a neighbor, a friend, an old friend, a family member, sister, brother, somebody that isn't saved, right? We all know unsaved people. To the extent that we can share the gospel with them, that is doing the work of God. Keep your finger here and go to John chapter 17. 
and I thought I had it in my notes and I do somewhere, but I don't see it. So we're just going to wing it here. Um, hmm. uh, I'm looking for the verse that says that he has finished the work. Is it five? Yeah, verse four, I've brought you, he's talking to his father, Jesus says, I brought you glory on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. What's the work that he did that we're going to do? Bringing God glory. How can we do that? By obeying, by submitting to his leadership, by showing the world our changed lives, and by sharing the gospel with people. Somebody comes to faith in Christ as a result, that's a greater miracle than if you restored their paralyzed legs and their blind eyes. Why? Because those are temporary miracles. This is a permanent uh, miracle, much, much greater kind of a miracle. Um, so for the apostles, they did do some of those sign miracles, but um, the main thing was that they spread the gospel. Okay, now let's go to greater miracles. Let's finish that verse, and then we'll talk about it. Verse 12, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. You say, well, wait a minute. How could it be greater than what Jesus Christ did while on, while on the earth? Okay, listen. Let's look at the parameters. Jesus Christ on the earth had a ministry that lasted between three and three and a half years. That's it. Most of you have been a Christian longer than that. So you've had a ministry on the earth longer than Jesus has in terms of time. In Jesus's three, three and a half years, he traveled pretty much around Palestine, Israel, barely left the border area, Samaria kind of thing, very small area. Israel is the size roughly of New Jersey, if you've ever been in New Jersey. Very small area on the whole planet that he um, traveled. The disciples, after they get the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, take the gospel worldwide. Um, you can read the story, you know, books about the disciples and where they went. It is said that Thomas went east into India and possibly as far as China and into the Orient area. Some went to Europe. Within a few hundred years, Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. Jesus Christ, as great as he is, completed the work, bringing glory to God, dying on the cross. But the disciples, in numbers, sheer numbers, Jesus never saw these kinds of numbers. Most of the Jews that heard and saw him are going to yell, crucify him tomorrow. This is Thursday night. On the other hand, on Pentecost, second chapter of Acts, Peter preaches a sermon, and he's not a preacher, he's a fisherman, but indwelled by the Spirit of God, he preaches a sermon, and 3,000 people get saved like that. Pretty amazing. Look at the church worldwide, over 2 billion Christians, greater works indeed. These are all eternal miracles when somebody comes to faith in Christ. So, um, he talks about the works, but he says, we're going to do greater works. The greatest work you can do is not healings. It's telling somebody about Jesus Christ and seeing them come to faith in the Lord. It's an eternal miracle. Today, his ministry goes on on television, on radio, Christian radio, on the internet, MP3s and 
all kinds of downloads you can do on the internet, books, um, the giving away of Bibles, the Gideons and all of that. Jesus never saw that kind of numbers. So in terms of extent, both physically and also in terms of the numbers of converts, Jesus never saw that. The word is still spreading. All the nations uh, will have believers in them. Uh, we already saw that. Uh, the reason it all worked out is because, in a sense, he ends up being inside of each believer because of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's about to talk about. Um, so when you rate miracles according to greatness, the greatest miracle is somebody on a street corner sharing Christ with somebody who comes to faith and their whole life is changed forever. Um, let's go back to the text. Um, Notice the last phrase, though, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. What does that have to do with anything? If Jesus doesn't go to the Father, meaning he's going to die, rise from the dead, and then ascend. Remember all that? After 40 days. If he doesn't do that, let's say Jesus rises from the dead and stays on the earth and travels here and there. He is one person. He has to go to heaven to the father so that the father we're going to find out will send the holy spirit which instead of one jesus it becomes in a sense an army of jesuses is that a word plural jesus in it jesus i no i'm i don't know but anyway my point is each of us have the holy spirit inside of us guiding us giving us the words it's an army of people that can spread the gospel and make it in a good way contagious if you will all this because he's going to the father he's going to explain that more in a second but i gave you the hint with the holy spirit thing verse 13 just when you thought the promises couldn't get even more fantastic here comes another one you just found out you're going to do greater works than christ did by the way the question is are we doing that are we spreading the gospel to people well, I'm not really a preacher and I don't want to get shot down. I don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. And if somebody doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus, their house is on fire. If you were walking by my house at midnight and saw my house is on fire, I hope you'd wake me up and make me uncomfortable to let me know. I hate to wake Joe and tell him his house is on fire. No, you should wake me and tell me. Verse 13. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Well, there it is. How many have heard of the term blank check? Right? Some millionaire gives you a blank check and says, you just fill in the amount. Go ahead. That sounds like on the surface level, that's what he's giving us. Whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. So does that mean unlimited riches and power and fame and Rolls Royces and Rolex watches and billions of dollars? I'm asking in Jesus name. People, some people think that to pray, you have to tack on the little mantra, the little Aladdin's lamp in Jesus name. Amen. If you forget to say it, people go, oh, you didn't say in Jesus name. Didn't count. Prayer didn't count. See, there's the phone ringing. Somebody knows I'm right. Okay, what's going on here? It does sound like a blank check. 
It says, I will do whatever you ask in my name. That's Jesus answering the prayers. The normal mode of prayer in the Bible, before we dive into this, is to pray to the Father, our Father, right? The Lord's Prayer. In the name of the Son, we'll get back to what that means, in the power of the Holy Spirit, whole Trinity involved. Okay, let's take it apart. But before we do, I forgot to mention, are there prayers in the Bible to Jesus? Yes. Very rare, but they're in there. Are there prayers to the Holy Spirit? Yes. Again, rare. The normal, but they're all the same in a sense, three beings, one God, but the prayers are usually prayed to the Father in the name of the Son. Have you heard the saying, stop in the name of the law? You ever heard that? We've got an ex-lawman uh, law, here. Were you a sheriff, Ken? Sheriff. Um, and a captain, right? Weren't you? Trained other. Stop in the name of the law. The guy that's saying that is just another human being. So who cares? The reason you care is in the name of the law means the power that the law has vested in this person gives him that authority. When we pray in the name of Jesus, we're praying in the name of Jesus, meaning according to his perfect righteous record and his authority, we're praying because we are now connected with him through faith. But there's more. Is this a blank check? It is not. So those of you that were thinking of praying for a house on the beach and a couple of Rolls Royces, forget it. I mean, you can try. Turn, keep your finger here and go to 1 John chapter 5. So that's way in the back. Go to Revelation and then take a left and you'll come to Jude and then a couple of books named John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. Go to 1 John chapter 5. But the way you find it is you go to Revelation and take a left. 1 John chapter 5 explains what he means by this. Okay, I'll wait for you to get there. 1 John 5. The lesson that I'll tell you this teaches you is you never build a doctrine off of one verse. The coordinating verses that speak about the same subject have to all agree for you to build a doctrine. So we're building a doctrine on prayer. We know that prayer is communication with God and that we can do it just by speaking. He can hear us. We know that what praying in the name of Jesus means, or at least in part, we're going to learn the rest now. First John 5. Are you there? Say amen. amen. That's kind of weak. How about you on Zoom? Are you there? Say amen or raise your hand. Okay, I saw you, Joe and Sheila. All right, go to First John chapter 5, verse four, uh, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Okay, who's the audience? Believers. He wrote this book so they'd know they have eternal life. Okay, verse 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything, there's that word again. Okay, anything. Oh, wait, there's a qualifier. According to his will... He hears us. And verse 15, if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. So there's the qualifier. To pray in the name of the Lord Jesus is to ask something to do his work. What was his work in John 17? To bring glory to the Father. Is what I'm asking for something that will bring glory to you, Lord? Rolex watch. No. No. House on the beach. Be nice. 
I'll praise you even more with the sound of the waves, Lord. Just give me that. Not necessarily, right? It has to be in accordance with his will. Okay, well, how do you know what his will is? Read the Bible and it becomes clear, right? He seeks to glorify the son through uh, the father, sorry, through the son. It ought to be something that is not selfish. It ought to be something that brings glory to God through helping others, that sort of thing. But it can also be something that involves repentance. Let me give you an example. If you have a problem with alcohol or stealing or lust, and you pray to God sincerely, please take away this fill in the blank, desire for alcohol, this desire to steal and be greedy, this desire for lust. Is that prayer in the will of God? Absolutely, yes. When would God say, no, I want you to have that sinful desire, Harold? He would never say that. That's the kind of prayer God hears and answers. Open doors for me to witness to other people to bring you glory. Do you think he's going to answer that prayer? I do. There are other types of prayers where there's the revealed will of God, the Bible, and then there's the permissive or unrevealed will of God. What do you mean? I mean, I've got an opportunity for a job in Houston, and I've got an opportunity for a job in Boston. I don't know which one to take, Lord. Will you please show me? You can't look up jobs in the Bible, although there is a book called Job. Oh, wait, that's Job. Never mind. Anyway, you can't, that's not revealed. He, you just have to pray to him, trust that he'll close doors to one and open the Houston one, and you go to Houston kind of thing. But the point is, whatever you ask in my name, it has to be in accordance with his will. It could get ridiculous, couldn't it? If I hated somebody and I said, please, Lord, kill that guy. It says anything. Is that in accordance with God's will? Could you pray that in the name and the power of the Lord Jesus who lived his whole life to bring glory to God? No, of course not. So it's not a blank check. It's not an Aladdin's lamp, but don't miss the point. It's an unbelievable promise. That prayer, which is communication with God, is heard when you even think it, whisper it, say it. It's amazing. I believe when we get to heaven, the most unused weapon in the Christian arsenal will be prayer. We'll realize how much we should have been praying, and we thought nothing was happening, and that prayer was changing things in an amazing way to his glory, not yours or mine. Um, all of the prayers that we pray, um, if you notice, ought to have uh, the same four elements. We've done this before. I'll do it quickly. ACTS, A-C-T-S. It's an acronym. Anybody here remember what those were? No? Okay. Oh, good. A couple people. Acts. Your prayer should have adoration or praise at the beginning. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. There it is. Praise, worship for God. Okay. So also have the C. A is for adoration. C for confession. A point where you say, I know I'm a sinner. Forgive me for what I thought yesterday or did or said yesterday. Confession. T, thanksgiving. Very, very important. And S, supplication is where we ask for stuff. Usually it works like this. I want you to please bless the family of Jerry Herndon, who just passed away. Bless them and bless Kathy and bless whoever. Then prayers for yourself. 
adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. The central phrase, I know I say this almost every week, and the Lord's prayer is, thy will be done. There it is. Remember First John we just read? Has to be in accordance with his will. Thy will be done. What you want to have happen, that's what I want to have happen. Prayer is not trying to convince God to change his mind and go your way. Prayer is me praying his will back to him. I'm learning your words so well, God. I believe this is what you want. If it's not, your will be done. What's the other phrase right after that? Thy kingdom, come, right before it, thy kingdom come. May your kingdom come to the earth in my life and then ultimately in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So it's not a blank check, but it's an amazing promise. He's saying, you're going to do greater works. You're going to be witnessing for me. You're going to be leading people to Christ. By the way, while you're doing that, verse 13, if you have anything you need for that, ask me. Um, the other indication that I'm right is, look at verse 13 again. I will do whatever you ask in my name, meaning in his power and according to his will. Notice this. What's the motive? So that What's the last phrase in verse 13? So that we can get all the toys that we want. Is that what it says? So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Is what I'm praying something that would bring glory to God through Jesus Christ? Another question you can ask. We pray, you heard me pray, for healing for about maybe 15 people, right? If those people get healed, you can bet. I'm going to shout from the rooftops. We prayed to Jesus, to God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so-and-so was healed. It's all his glory. It's not me because I had a special way of praying. or It doesn't matter. It's God's glory. Um, let's see. Do we want to do anything else about that? Thy will be done. Yeah. Um, there are, yes, occasional prayers to Jesus and to the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's keep rolling. Verse 14, he sort of reiterates it. You may ask me for anything. Uh, yeah, you may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. This is unheard of. None of the prophets from Israel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Moses, nobody ever said, when you pray, make sure you ask in my name. Why is his name so important? A person's name in the Bible doesn't just mean their label. It means all they are, his character. The fact that he has bridged the gap between you and God because of taking away the guilt for your sin on the cross now brings you access into the throne room of God. We, we misuse prayer, I have a feeling. Um, if you only pray when you're in bed late at night, you're probably making a mistake. Have you ever prayed this way? Lord, we just pray for this. You ever done that? Fallen or forgotten? Oh, I was praying. What was I praying about? Or oh, your mind wandered away? Man, it's communing with the God of the universe. What an amazing power. Um, there's a time in prayer where you're speaking, obviously, right? But there's a time in prayer where you just be silent and let him talk. Are you saying you're hearing audible voices, Joe? No, I never have. Are you saying that God will speak to you through prayer, through your mind? Sometimes. The primary way he speaks to us is the Bible, the book on your lap. 
But God has ways of communicating with us, sometimes through a Christian friend, sometimes through his word, sometimes through your thoughts as you're praying, worshiping him. Um, okay, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate or comforter or counselor to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Okay, I took a purposely a large bite there to give you the context. But the astounding thing is that first verse. If you love me, keep my commands. So the first question you would have to ask is, what are his commands? Well, it's everything that he says in the Bible that's a command. We just heard one earlier, right? Don't let your heart be troubled. That's a command. So you have to know the word of God to know his commands. Who is this for? Those that love God. If you're in love with someone, you tend to want to please that person, right? If you love someone who loves ballet and you hate ballet, I bet you're going to go to a ballet because you love the person or you love someone that loves golf and you're going to watch golf on Sunday afternoon and think, oh, this is so dumb, but he loves it. So great. We tend to want to please the one we love. Who's the one you're supposed to love more than anybody? Love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus claims the same prerogative. If you love me, keep my commands. You say, what's the connection there? Why is, so really what we're talking about here is obedience, isn't it? Why is obedience a proof of love? First of all, it is not um, tyrannical. It's, he's not a tyrant. You better keep my commands. Every command he has for you and me is for your good and mine. Every single one. I used to think Christianity was true, but I was, you know, in my teens, 16, 17, and I thought, I still want to have fun. I don't want to be a Christian as if they were mutually exclusive. All the things that I did that I thought were fun, most of them were sinful at that age. What I've come to learn is the more you keep his commands, the more blessed your life is. If you love him, it's a logical thing to want to please him. Not Love is not a sentimental or emotional thing. It's um, the command to love one another, the command to put their faith in him, to believe in God and believe also in him, to not uh, let your heart be troubled. But here's the thing. What is the motivator? And he doesn't say it in this scripture, but it's a good time to mention it. Do you know that there are two motivators mainly for human behavior? One is, uh, one is force and the other one is love. I'll show you what I mean. Um, if Ken back there, if I want Ken to do something, I could go get a gun and point it at him and say, this is what I want you to do. And he might say, okay, right? But he'll never love me, right? He's being forced to do what I want him to do. So all I'm getting is what I want and I'm moving on. On the other hand, if Ken knows me and we have a relationship and we love one another in Christ, he's much more likely to do what I want without the gun, right? As if it's reasonable. All the more so 
for God the, Fa- God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. Here he's saying, if you love me, keep my commands. Okay, so what's the ultimate motivator? And it's the cross. When you see how much he did for you, taking your sin, taking your place on the cross, not only living the perfect life you and I couldn't live, but dying the horrible death I deserved, that motivates me. I owe him everything. What do you want me to do? I'll do it. Here I am teaching Bible study on Tuesday night. I owe him everything. I'll never be able to pay back the debt. The cross softens a heart to the point where you want to obey him. What about the love? How can I get love for somebody I've never met? Get to know him in the word. See the beauty of his character, the beauty of how much he loved you. The Bible says he first loved you. He made the first move. He died for you and I. That's the ultimate motivator, not threats of hell, which is why some people come to faith. Let's face it fire insurance, right? I don't want to go to hell. I'm going to, okay, Jesus. Yeah, I'm bowing my head. I believe in Jesus. Did it work? That's no real motivator. The real motivator is the love of God poured into our hearts and our lives in such a way that we realize how much we owe him and we are motivated to obey him. Here's the fringe benefit. The more you obey God, the closer he, the relationship is between the two of you. Um, less blockage in terms of sin, if you will. Uh, Yeah, we already talked about that. We don't obey to get salvation. We've already got it. We don't obey so God will love us more. He already loves us as much as he's ever going to. We don't obey so that I did that. Now you have to bless me. You owe me. Wrong. We owe him. But we love him so much for because of what he did that we're willing to absolutely obey him. If you love me, keep my commands. Verse 15. Now, Why immediately following that verse do we have the Holy Spirit? And the answer is, if the chapter ended at verse 15, we would all be in big trouble. If all he said was, here's my commands, go do it, then Christianity would be like any other religion. Here's the doctrine, go do it. The problem is, you can't and I can't obey his commands. Why? We have a sin nature. We are selfish by nature. That's the way we were born. So we need a little help. As a matter of fact, we need a lot of help. Verse 16, and I will ask the father. They're very connected. If you love me, keep my commands. I'll ask the father. He will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The reason we can obey God is because the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of every single Christian and married Christian. I mean, every Christian. and As a result, we are now able to obey him where we weren't before. You can try to live the Christian life without, I'm just going to live the morals. I read the book. uh, I understand it. I don't want Jesus. I don't want the Holy Spirit. I'm going to live that ethical uh, code of conduct. You'll never do it. You'll never do it. And you'll never have a forgiveness of sins because you don't have a savior. I'll ask the father. He will give you another. The Greek word means another of the same kind. And in other words, he's saying, I know you guys are bummed out. I'm going away. I'm going to give you another counselor, another advocate, another comforter who's just like me. But I'm going to give it to you each 
individually so that the Holy Spirit lives inside of a believer. He becomes a louder conscience for sin. He becomes a motivator that speaks to you. He makes the Bible more clear and you get more illumination out of it. That's what he's talking about. That's why it comes right after keep my commands because he knows they can't. The proof of that is look at the disciples who are fleshly and they're faulty and they're kind of foolish, right? They're arguing about who's the greatest uh, in the parallel passage in Luke right before he washes their feet. Jesus, the God of the universe is there and they're arguing about which one of them is the greatest. There's humans trying to obey his commands. Can't do it. The same guys in Acts chapter two and the whole book of Acts and from the rest of human history with the Holy Spirit living inside of them are able to live lives of obedience that explodes the growth of the Christian church from a very small thing in a small area to a worldwide, the largest religion in, in human history. Let's take our two minute break. We got a lot more to talk about and I want to talk about the Trinity too. I'm going to take a two minute break. Don't go away. I'll be right back. There we go, and we are back. Um, all three buttons, thank you, are, are hit, and audio's even on, amazing. All right, are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Oh, that was better. Okay, you guys on Zoom, you all good? Amen? Good. Okay, the, Jesus is promising them another comforter. Uh, the word in uh, Latin is comfortari, from which we get comfort, but it really means a, a, someone to strengthen, come alongside like a legal um, assistant that will come alongside and help you. Um, parenthetically, the Muslims say, this is describing Mohammed. I know you're rolling your eyes too. Okay, let's move on. I just wanted to throw that in. I will ask the father and he will give you another, that's the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice that the Trinity is in these verses. Do you see it? The Son, second person of the Trinity, asks the Father, first person of the Trinity, to send the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. If Jesus doesn't go to heaven, the Holy Spirit can't come. He's got to go to heaven and be with the Father to show him, I paid for the sins of the world. The fact that he ascends shows the Father accepts the sacrifice. But then we've got all these people on earth trying to be Christians, and they can't do it on their own. How awesome it would be if God could live inside of every believer, and he does. That's what we're talking about here, the Holy Spirit. In the Bible, the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is referred to always, listen, with male pronouns. You mean he's a male? No, I mean it's a personage, not an it. Jehovah's Witnesses think that the Holy Spirit is a force. It's a power. It's been explained to me as it's like gravity or electricity. The problem is in the Bible, the Holy Spirit, listen, speaks. He can be grieved. He has will. He's the one that distributes the spiritual gifts to whomever he, the Holy Spirit, wishes. In Acts 5, somebody lies about how much money they're giving to the church, and they're told that you have lied to the Holy Spirit. You have not lied to men. You've lied to God. So, can electricity be lied to, which is a force? Gravity, which is a force? Could you lie to gravity? I'm going to grieve gravity now. I'm going to wait till gravity speaks to me. It's a personage. 
third person of the Trinity is who he's talking about. The beauty of this is it's for their benefit that he goes away because if he doesn't, he's localized. Jesus Christ was in one place at a time in a human body. The Holy Spirit is all over the world in every nation right now in believers working God's plan in thousands of, if you will, cells, meaning human beings who are believers. I will ask the Father, he will give you another comforter, advocate, to why? Help you and be with you forever. Remember the temporary miracles? Healing, sight, raising somebody from the dead, all temporary. They're great, don't get me wrong, they prove he's God. This is a permanent miracle, the Holy Spirit, God himself living with people. Do you remember in the Old Testament when Jesus is predicted, he's called, his name shall be called Emmanuel, which being translated means what? God with us. Now, with means you could watch a movie with your buddy Jim and he could sit next to you and he's with me. But this is with and a more intimate inside way than we can even imagine. The Holy Spirit living inside of you. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon certain individuals, prophets. The Holy Spirit came upon Ezekiel and he prophesied the word of the Lord saying, thus saith the Lord and he speaks. David has the Holy Spirit. He writes scripture. But when he sins in the Old Testament, the rule was the Holy Spirit could come and go on people, not here, forever. When David sins with Bathsheba, he writes Psalm, I think it's 51, in which he says, take not your Holy Spirit from me because of this. Christians don't ever have to pray that. You've got the Holy Spirit living inside of you. He, he's not living out of a suitcase. He lives inside of you. He's moved in and he's rearranging furniture as we speak in your life. That's a whole different metaphor. Let's keep rolling, shall we? Um, okay, so, um, well, we'll get to that. I want to talk about the Trinity a little more, but uh, let's see. We are, well, yeah, we're ahead of ourselves here, aren't we? Let me go back to here, to this part of my notes. Okay, the Holy Spirit, I already told you, prays for us, Romans 8. I didn't mention that, but he speaks. He can be grieved. He was there in creation. It's the second verse in the Bible, Genesis 1-2. He is there in regeneration, John 3-5. Pentecost, he comes down in a big way and fills all the believers all at once, and they're able to speak in other languages. It's a sign that something amazing has happened. All major world religions deny the Trinity, Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism. They desire, de deny the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity, again, just to review very simply, is three planks. Plank number one, right out of the Old Testament. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God. You say, wait, Trinity is three. Yes, we'll get to that. But there is only one God. All the other religions, except Islam and Judaism, all the cults, all the animism and all the stuff in Africa, they're all polytheists, many gods. There's one God. That's the first thing. Second plank, there is a personage called the Father, in the Bible, who is clearly God. There's a personage called Jesus Christ, who is clearly God. You've seen it here. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. There's a personage called the Holy Spirit, who's also called God. One what, God? Three who's, Jesus, the Father, the Holy Spirit. One plus one plus one is three. No, one times one times one is 
One. One what, three who's. The third plank is that they are eternally distinct. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. You see how they're mentioned individually. I, Jesus, will ask the Father, different personage, and he will send a third personage. Do you understand? Holy Spirit. Um, let's see. The only, you can't make an analogy about God, but the best analogy for the Trinity I've ever heard is the pot boiling on the stove. How many remember that one? Anybody? Okay, a few of you. You put a big pot of water on the stove. Chemically, what's in the pot? H2O, right? Turn the heat up full blast. It's starting to boil. Steam is starting to come off the pot. What's in the pot? Steam and water, a gas and a liquid. Oh, two different things. But chemically, what's in the pot? The steam and the water are both H2O. You still with me? At a precise moment, you throw in a block of ice. Now you've got a solid, a liquid, and a gas, three things, but they're all H2O in different forms. Is that a good analogy? No, there's no good analogy for God, but it's the best one I've heard. I don't like the egg, the shell, and the yolk and all that. Anyway, shall we move on? Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, that was pretty good. Um, those of you on Zoom, I could almost hear you that time. All right. I see the waving anyway. He's going to send us a comforter, someone to come alongside us and help us. And he helps us in ways I don't think we even realize. Um, we already talked about that. First uh, Corinthians 6 says your body is the temple. You mean in Jerusalem? No, your body, where you are right now, is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is God. Pretty amazing thing. Good reason to take care of your temple, right? But there are others. Okay, let's keep rolling. He's called what? Verse 17, the spirit of truth. He personifies truth. There's no error in him, just like there isn't in the Father or in Jesus. He makes the word of God come alive for you. He is the one responsible for anybody hearing the gospel and either growing or believing it so that Whoever teaches a Bible study or preaches a sermon, I don't care how good the sermon is or the Bible study is, you know who gets the glory? The Holy Spirit is the one teaching this Bible study and every other one, the one preaching and giving every sermon. He's the spirit of truth. Okay, is it available to everybody? John, verse 17, the world cannot accept him. What's, what do you mean by the world? I mean the unsaved world. That's when the world is used in the book of John, especially. It's those that don't believe. You've received Jesus, and that's why the Holy Spirit can come inside of you. How can God come and live inside of a filthy human being? He can't. Unless there's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Once the sin problem in my soul was dealt with, and I was forgiven because I believed then God can take up residence inside of me. Before that, I couldn't just skip Jesus and go, can I just get the Holy Spirit and I'll move on? Wouldn't work. The world cannot accept him. Why not? It neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. The world still has the sin problem, a sin nature, unforgiven sin. The world, to tell you the truth, wouldn't want the Holy Spirit calling the shots in their lives. Notice that it can't accept him. It neither sees him nor knows him. You say, well, you know, of the three, God the Father, God the Son, Holy Spirit, I feel like I know the Holy Spirit the least. 
to tell you the truth, and you may feel the same way. You'll notice that two of the three have a personal name. God the Father is the Father. He's also Yahweh or Jehovah, Old Testament. The second person of the Trinity is Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And there's other names for him, the great I am, the Messiah, right? Holy Spirit, what's his first name? We're never told. He's just another comforter. He's the one behind the scenes. In a sense, he gets the least credit, and he ought to get a lot of credit. Um, but why does he say the world can't accept him because it doesn't see him or know him? But he says, but you know him. And the apostles must be thinking, we do? The reason they know the Holy Spirit is because they know Jesus, right? They know Jesus really well. They've been hanging out with him for three years, maybe a little longer. Because they know Jesus, there's no difference in the character of the Holy Spirit and the character of Jesus. It's not like the Holy Spirit and Jesus debate things and don't agree. They fully agree. Because they know and see Jesus, they know and see God the Father and the Holy Spirit. The world can't accept him, verse 17, because it doesn't see him or know him. But you know him for he lives. Notice this. Notice the language very carefully. He lives with you present tense, lives, and will be, future tense, in you. You see the difference? Right now, he's with you, he's telling the apostles, not in you. They don't, haven't received the Holy Spirit yet. That doesn't happen until Acts chapter 2, about 40, uh, 50 days from when he's saying this, give or take. But he's already with them. He's been with them, resting on them like he did the Old Testament prophets. They were able to do miracles themselves when he sent them out two by two. Do you remember that? But he will be in them. When he goes to heaven, then he can indwell each one of them permanently. So that's why he says he lives with you right now because Jesus is there and will be in you in the future. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. What's that? Well, what's an orphan? An orphan is a child, and he called them little children earlier, is a child that has been abandoned or, or his parents have passed away, right? And the child has no one to care for them. He's saying what you're thinking, the reason your hearts are troubled is you think I'm leaving and that's it. That's the end of the whole story. I'm not going to leave you like orphans. He's going to come to them. In what way? And by the way, we'll come back to orphans in a second. In what way is he going to come to them? Well, three days from now, he's going to rise from the dead. It's Thursday, right? Friday, Saturday, Sunday. He's going to come back to them. Way number one. Way number two. He's going to appear to them several times in those 40 days. Then he's going to ascend to the Father, and he's going to come to them in the form of the Holy Spirit. That's another way. He's also going to come to earth again in the second coming. Okay, So in many ways, he's going to come to them. Um, his personal presence will still be with them. Think about orphans for a second. Their caregiver is either dead or gone. They're going to feel like orphans for two and a half days when Jesus dies. He's not dead, right? He's going to come back from the dead. Um, an orphan is all alone, but the spirit living inside of them means we are never alone. God is always with us. An orphan lost their provider. The Holy Spirit provides all things. Orphans in that culture were generally very poor and very vulnerable. 
they will be rich in the things of God that matter, and he'll protect them for as long as they are to do ministry. So he's going to be with them. He's trying to comfort them. The world's not going to see him, but they will see him because they know Jesus. Um, let's see. Uh, now back to the text. I lost my place. I'm, I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, verse 19, the world will not see me anymore. What do you mean? He's going to die. Once he dies and they bury him, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus and others, once he's buried, the world does not, the unsaved world never sees him again until the second coming. And then, ouch, look out, it's judgment time. But he says the world isn't going to see him anymore, verse 19, before long. Yeah, it won't be long at all. But you will see me because I live, you will also live. He's going to see them again. He's talking about post-resurrection appearances. He appears several times, once to 500 people, um, once separately to his brother James, several times to the apostles. He's saying, you're going to see me again. The world won't. It's cryptic, and they don't understand it at this time. But when they do understand it, when it all happens, they're going to see it as fulfilled prophecy and realize that not only is he the Messiah, he's a prophet as well, prophesying the future. Before long, the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You will also live. That's interesting. They're saying yeah, we're already alive, but he means in the spiritual sense, because I live, because I rise from the dead and paid for your sins, you will live in a spiritual sense you've never lived before. The Holy Spirit will come inside of you. He's talking about the eternal life he's been promising all through the Gospel of John. On that day, verse 20, you will realize that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. The light bulbs are all going to go on in the apostles. They're going to understand. Right now, they've got a million questions. Can't you just imagine? You, we've already heard some of them. We don't know the way. Where are you going again? Um, you're going to hear a question in just a second, but let's keep rolling. Um, on that day, you'll realize that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Do you see the mutual indwelling? He's in the Father, and the Father's in him, but you are in me. You live your life in me. We're going to talk about that when we get to abiding in chapter 15. And I in you. Okay. So we talked about the Holy Spirit, right? A person becomes a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of them. Generally, the Bible teaches that when, let's say, Thursday, September 9th, um, 1979, someone came to Christ, okay? Does that mean that that was the first time the Holy Spirit dealt with that person was Thursday, September 9th? Probably not. I would argue that a year, two years, two months, nine years, the Holy Spirit in that guy's life has been drawing him, convicting him of sin, pulling him into a relationship with the Lord Jesus. But he doesn't live inside of him until he completely believes. Okay, now this may shock you a little, but listen, it's biblical. A Christian has the Holy Spirit living inside of them, by definition. Is that true? It is. I'm going to show you that a Christian has the whole Trinity living inside of them. What do you mean, God the Father and Jesus? Yes. Okay, get ready to turn some pages. Are you ready? Go to Galatians chapter 2. So from John, take a right 
I'll say seven books. I'm not very good at counting numbers. Six books. Past the two Corinthian books, take a right, and you'll see Galatians right after 2 Corinthians. Galatians chapter 2. I want you to see this. What an amazing thing. Remember that Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. Galatians chapter 2. And we want verse 20. Galatians 2, 20. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul writes. He's a believer. And I no longer live, but what? Christ lives in me. Okay, I, I thought it was just the Holy Spirit. You thought wrong. Is the Holy Spirit in there too? Absolutely. It doesn't say he lives with you. It says Christ lives in you. Do you see that? Um, okay. Now let's look at Ephesians um, 3.17. So from Galatians, one book to the right. It's easy. Ephesians 3. By the way, I always give directions where the books are because I went to a Bible study when I was a new Christian and man, they were going, go to Ezekiel chapter five. I'm going, where, what, what now? First Corinthians, what? Is there a table of contents? So that's why I give directions in case you were wondering. Okay, go to um, Ephesians 3, 17. Hope that's right. Uh, well, go to 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit. There it is, in your inner being. Okay, the Holy Spirit lives inside of me in 16. I get it. So that Christ may what? Dwell in your hearts through faith. Rooted and established in love. Christ lives inside of believers as well as the Holy Spirit. Now, you may ask, well, wait a minute. Jesus says where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. Isn't that the requirement? You got to have two or three believers gathered in his name, not to play polo but to or trivial pursuit but to talk about jesus or pray or worship yes that's true but even a solo christian at the top of a mountain with nobody around jesus is there inside of you well then what does we, what does he mean that there i am in their midst in some mystical spiritual way i don't understand he's more there when two christians are talking about the lord communing together or three or twenty or a thousand he, there he is in their midst. So Jesus Christ, therefore, attends this Bible study every Tuesday. Does that make me nervous? A little. All right. Now I want to show you that the Father is also uh, inside of you. Now go way back to 1 John. Remember 1 John right before Revelation? 1 John, and I think it's chapter 4. Uh, we already know about the Spirit. Yeah, so past 1 Peter, 1 John chapter four. Are you getting tired of turning pages? Okay, good. First John 4, 15. If anyone, first John 4, verse 15, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, okay, stop right there. Do you acknowledge that? That Jesus Christ is the son of God? Yeah, if you're a believer, you do. Then what happens then? God lives in him and he in God. There it is. I rest my case, your honor. There's our evidence. Who lives inside of a believer? Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, God the Father. Now, if that doesn't make you want to behave and obey, because you, know, you've, you always have heard like, you know, God's watching. I got news for you. God's got a front row view in your life, pal. 
right? Pretty amazing thing. God in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory is another scripture we could have turned to. Okay, now go back to the gospel of John. You remember John? We were there a while ago. Okay, and go to 14. Still got some time. Most people are still awake. John, John 14. Okay. I don't usually do this, but I'm going to um, skip down a little bit, I think. Um, yeah. Um, go back to John 14. Um, another proof of what I just said. Look at verse 23. We're going to skip down to 23. Jesus gets asked a question. We'll cover it in a second. But he says, if anyone loves me, that's you, he will obey my teaching or my word or my commands. My father will love him. Did you know that? God loves you. And we, who's we? He's saying the father and I, did you see that? My father will love him and we will come to him and make our monet, our home, our abode with him. Who lives with you? I'm just me and my wife. I'm just me and my roommate. No, you got another roommate. You got a couple more. Holy Spirit, God the Father, Jesus Christ. Pretty amazing. Okay, now, sorry, I skipped. Now we're going back. I won't leave you as orphans, verse 18. I'll come to you before long. The world won't see me. You'll see me. I live. Because I live, you will live also. Boy, they, for three days, they must have thought, well, he doesn't live. He's dead. Then he comes back to life and they go, ah, and the light bulbs go on. On that day, you'll realize I'm in the Father and you're in me and I'm in you. Mutual abiding. Verse 21, whoever has my commands, my word, and keeps it, keeps my word, keeps them, is the one who loves me. Why do we have to keep his commands? And why is that a proof that we love him? Listen, the key in chapter 15 is going to be producing fruit that we're branches and he's the vine. I know I'm skipping ahead. And the fact is that we are to show fruit in our Christian life. Repentance from sin. We ought to have the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, you know, that whole list. Um, we ought to have the fruit of spreading the gospel to others and having people come to faith in Christ. The point is, Unless we're obedient, unless we keep his commands, we will never have that closeness to where he will allow us to bear fruit. He, God wants us to obey him because it's all for our good. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. So, for example, someone that says, I love the Lord. And you look at their life and they're disobeying God. They're cheating on their wife. They're stealing at work. They're looking at pornography. They're always lying. They're whatever. Does that person love Christ? No, they're not obeying his commands. The one who loves me, I'm still reading in 21, will be loved by my father. And I too will love them and reveal myself or show myself to them. The fact that you're in this Bible study, whether you know it or not, shows that you are interested enough to want to learn and have Jesus show himself to you. And hopefully he's doing so every week here. The one who loves me will be loved by my father. God loves you. He is not angry, the angry God at you with a billy club who can't wait to stomp you on the 
head or hit you with a billy club. Listen, God loves you. He calls you his daughter or his son. And yes, there's only two genders. Okay. Um, the one who loves me will be loved by my father. That's an amazing thing. And I too will love them and show myself to them. Re the revelation of Jesus Christ comes from the more we obey, the more we're closer and closer and closer to him. And the more we see Jesus Christ in um, the world, in our, ourselves, the way he's changing us, and certainly in the word. <clears throat> we already talked about that. Um, so he's going to disclose himself when he resurrects, but he's really going to disclose himself once they have the Holy Spirit. So he's encouraging them to keep on going. Here comes the question that he answered earlier, which is verse 22. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? They assumed that this thing is going to just explode and he's going to be filling stadiums in New York City. Okay, they didn't say New York City, but you know what I mean? They think it's going to get really big. And he's saying, I'm, I'm going to be leaving you really soon. What? Are you going to only reveal yourselves to the 11 dudes in this little room, upper room here at a meal? This is it? That's the question. You may be asking yourself, Judas, not Iscariot? Okay. A lot of the disciples have two names. Okay. Simon, who is also called Peter, right? Remember that one? Okay. Judas is the same as Thaddeus. You've heard of this disciple Thaddeus? He's one of the few disciples about which there's almost nothing written. Some people, we really, Peter, come on, John, Apostle Paul, this is Judas, also called Thaddeus. Uh, Matthew 10, Mark 3 is where the name. He's saying, we're the only ones that are going to see you? We thought this was going to go worldwide. Jesus is thinking, I just told you, you're going to have the Holy Spirit. It is going worldwide. Guess who's going to spread the word? You guys. That's what he's saying. 11 untrained apostles in an upper room are going to turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ. Did they? Absolutely. Is it still going on? It is. Um, let's see. He's going to reveal himself, verse 22. Um, well, that's the question, first of all. Do you intend to show yourself only to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, verse 23. I want you to notice that it's going to sound like he doesn't answer the question. Watch. So are you going to only show yourself to us and not the whole world? Verse 23, Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. If you're listening, you're, you're thinking, yeah, you already said that. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Okay, with you so far. My father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Now that may not sound like an answer. It's the answer. Are you going to show yourself only to us? He's saying, I'm going to live inside of you. And so will my father and so will the Holy Spirit. And when people see me in you, James, Thaddeus, whoever, Kathy, Joe, Ken, Boyce, they're going to see Christ and they're going to believe. That's He's answering him, but it's going to take a while. That's what he's starting to say. If you love me, you keep my teaching. God will be within them will make our home inside of them. Verse 24, anyone who does not love me 
will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. These are God's own words he's saying. So what he has said so far to them is the bad news, which appears to be bad, but it's not, and the good news. The bad news, I'm going to depart very soon. I'm preparing a place for you. I'm going to come back and get you so you can dwell with me. The preparation is the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, and eventually the second coming. Um, he'll, he's told him that he'll show up and appear after his death, and he did. He's told him the Holy Spirit will live inside him, but we also saw he himself will live inside them just now, and the verses I showed you, and God the Father is going to live inside of them. Pretty amazing thing. And then he's going to return to earth. And he's what he hasn't said yet is he's going to reign on the earth for a thousand years. And then the eternal state of heaven. We'll talk about that. Uh, another Bible study. Okay. So um, don't miss the fact that the, the Trinity is all through this scripture. You may hear people that don't believe in the Trinity tell you, you know, the word Trinity doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. It's true. But the concept is clearly taught. It can't be said that they are all the same person. It would make no sense that I'm going to ask the Father and the Father will send the Holy Spirit if they're all the same person. Impossible. So if you love me, you'll keep my teaching. My Father will love them and come and make our, we'll make our home with them. Verse 24, if you anyone that doesn't love me won't obey my teaching. And these are God's own words, he says. Verse 25, all this I've spoken while still with you, because he'll be gone from them in a few hours. Now he's going to get arrested near Gethsemane. All this I've spoken while still with you, implying what? Very soon I won't be, but the advocate, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, verse 26, whom the Father will send in my name. There's the Trinity again, Holy Spirit, Father, my name, Jesus. What's the Holy Spirit going to do, John? Jesus? will teach you all things. This is an amazing verse and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Have you ever read the gospels and thought, how did they remember all this? Whole conversations, dialogues. This is a pretty much a monologue. Chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 is a monologue. 90% of it is Jesus talking. How did, did John have an amazing memory? Did he write things down? The answer is in that verse, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and will remind you, bring to remembrance everything I've said to you. And they did. If you've seen The Chosen, has anybody seen The Chosen, the series? Uh, it's worth watching very much. You can get The Chosen app on your phone or you can watch it on YouTube. There's two seasons, eight episodes each one. The Life of Christ, really well done. In The Chosen, they show Matthew, who's a tax collector. Those of you that have seen it, have you noticed? He's always writing things down, just like a, an accountant would. Facts, figures, I got to keep track of everything. Matthew's gospel is long, right? He's got a lot of detail. Is that how it happened? Maybe. But maybe God enabled them to remember things almost in a vision to where they could see it happening again and write it all down. All scripture is inspired, God breathed by God. Uh, and so that's how they're, that answers the question. How did they remember all this stuff? Are they making it up? No, there's tremendous agreement. 
He's going to teach them all things, doctrine, everything they need to know. And will it's sort of like a download as opposed to a, you're going to go to a four-year, eight-year college, you know, get your master's degree in Bible studies. The Holy Spirit um, will be sent in his name. Teach them everything. Remind them everything I've said to you. Verse 27. Those of you that are anxious, worrier types, we all are to some extent. Verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. What's going on here? I forgot to mention that chapter 14 and a lot of these chapters where he's talking to them right before the crucifixion are a sort of reading of his last will and testament. You say, what do you mean? He doesn't have property to give to them or money. He's bequeathing to them things like the Holy Spirit. He's also bequeathing his residence in their lives, but here he's bequeathing, giving to them peace. Peace was shalom means peace in Hebrew. Shalom was both a greeting to say hello to someone, shalom, and you would say it when you're leaving. I'm leaving Joe and Kristen's house. I would say shalom if I, we were Jewish and we spoke Hebrew. It meant either thing. It's interesting. He says peace here as he's leaving, okay, shortly. When he appears to them, I think it's um, John 20. Do you know what he says? Shalom, peace be with you. Don't let your hearts be troubled. They remember they're afraid. They think they're seeing a ghost. Peace I leave. It's like I leave my car, my guitar to you, my house. I'm leaving you with peace. Notice this. What kind of peace? My peace. How flustered did Jesus get normally? He didn't. Very peaceful individual. He's leaving him his own peace. I don't give it to you the way the world gives. The world gives peace based on, listen, stuff. Stuff like money. That gives you peace of mind. If you have enough money, you'll have peace of mind. If you have a nice house, if you have prestige or a couple of college degrees or a trophy husband or a trophy wife, or you have two PhDs and you're the president of the bank, you know what the problem with all those things are? You can lose them. They can be stolen. You can fall from grace and no longer have the title. Good looks can bring you peace until you lose them. Money can all go. The house can burn. The car can get stolen. The Rolex can get stolen. If you can lose it, there's no peace in it. If, you, if it can wear out, there's no peace in it. He's leaving a permanent kind of a peace to them. Um, I don't give you as the world gives. That's not the kind of peace I'm giving. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. Notice the word let. Don't allow your heart to be troubled. When it's starting to be troubled, what are you supposed to do? Obey his commands because you love him. What's his command? Don't let that happen. Replace it with reading of scripture, with prayer, with just trusting God. We're out of time. I'm getting dirty looks. No, I'm just kidding. 
Let's close with prayer and we'll pick it up here next time, right at the end of this chapter. And then we'll dive into 15 next week. God willing, it's an amazing chapter. Thank you for being here. Let's pray. And then we'll say goodnight. Thank you all for coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these lessons, God. There's so much here. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, Father, and that Jesus perfectly reveals who you are. And the more we get to know him, we get to know you, Father and that you live along with Christ, along with the Holy Spirit, inside of it, us, it blows our minds. Thank you for the ultimate love and power that we have um, in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, everybody that you've put in our lives, you've put there for a reason. Help us to realize that we're supposed to do these greater works, which is to spread the word about your son, to bring glory to you and to your father uh, and to your son, which is the greatest Thing that can happen because of the eternality of the miracle. Help us to live that life of obedience that we want to please you because we love you. Thank you for this time in your word, God. We give praise and glory to you and we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know, those of you that are here and the rest of you on Zoom. God bless you. If you have a question or um, uh, comment, just email me. God bless. Thanks.